So our, our passage today is John chapter 1, verses 43 through 50. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of my favorite movies of all time is Stand By Me. Stand By Me is a classic, came out in 1986. It is an adaptation of a Stephen King uh, short story, uh, and I absolutely love it. Um, it's about, if you haven't seen it, uh, four teenagers. It's a coming-of-age story, four teenagers who go on a journey to find a, a classmate of theirs who has gone missing. And I'll admit it, if you haven't seen it, um, chances are that plot doesn't really make you want to add it to your Netflix watch queue, but if you have seen it, you're already convinced. It's an iconic movie with a number of scenes that really jump out at you. One such scene is uh, when the gang first decides to go on the journey. I've got a picture of it, and I, I pulled a picture of it because if you notice, they're, they're in a treehouse. Because you see, what Stand By Me is really about is about that invisible and frustrating line between adolescence and adulthood. And this scene, uh, the treehouse, I think, is a, a not-so-subtle nod to the boy's innocence. And two of the gang, they want to go on the journey right away, and the other two don't. And so the rest of this scene, it plays out around a simple invitation that I imagine we've all heard, probably even recently. It's a kind of ho-hum, everyday invitation, but half of the gang tries to convince the other half by saying, come and see, come and see. I mean, that really is what the plot of the entire movie hinges on, this simple invitation of come and see. And I wonder, I wonder when the last time somebody said to you, come and see was. Well, for me, uh, I hear this invitation uh, basically every day because who says come and see uh, more than toddlers? And we have one of those in our home. If I'm not playing with my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Bevan, then chances are he's coming to find me so that he can say, come and see to me about something, anything. Uh, this picture, my son Bevan's on the right, and that's his friend Calvin on the left. And right before my wife Ashley snapped this picture, uh, Calvin said to Bevan, come and see, come and see. Now you're all on the edge of your seats. What, what was it? Uh, it was, of course, a worm. I mean, what else... Could it be in the middle of the sidewalk? But still, that excited invitation from Calvin to Bevan, come and see, come and see, and it's the same in our home. Bevan comes to me, says, come and see the tower I just built. Come and see the tower I just destroyed. <laughs> Gotta see the blocks on the ground. Come and see the 
gutter that fell off the back of the house. Come and see the half-eaten apple that the silly squirrel tried to take to his nest. These are all real examples, by the way. (laughs) They happened in our home because there is something that is baked deep inside each and every one of us that when we count something as worthy, we have to say to someone else, come and see. But you see, that's the catch, isn't it? We only say, come and see, about things that are worthy. We only say, come and see, about things that are worthy. And really, toddlers and Bevan, he makes this point. Because for a two-year-old, everything is new, fresh, exciting. Everything is worthy of coming and seeing. But even as we get just a little bit older, and I think elementary students here with us this morning, it's a Worship Together Sunday, I think you guys know this to be true. The bar raises for what we say, come and see about. And as we move into our student years and and young adulthood and, and then older and older and over, the bar, as we see more, experience more, the bar to saying to someone else, come and see, it 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 raises. It does. And so it's even more notable when we find an adult saying, come and see, without hesitation. When an adult says, come and see, what it it ought to make us do is go, what are they saying, come and see, about? And that's exactly what happens today in our passage, John 1, verses 35 through 51. We heard Amanda read for us just a moment ago. Philip comes to Nathaniel. Philip says, I have found a man unlike anyone else, a man that the scriptures, the Old Testament prophesies about, tells about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And and, and Nathanael doubts, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And immediately, without hesitation, without thinking about it, right there in verse 46, Philip says to Nathanael, come and see. And again, we only say come and see about things that are worthy And so that leads us to our driving question this morning. Why is Jesus worthy? Why is Jesus of Nazareth worthy of coming and seeing? That's our driving question. I'd love to invite you to pray with us as we ask God to help us answer it well. Father in heaven, as we open your word, as we study John 1, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord. I pray you would help us to understand and know this question, why is Jesus worth seeing? I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and that we would walk out of here knowing the answer to that question. Amen. Well, we're in the final week of our Advent teaching series here at Christ Community. We've been anchored in John chapter 1. And as we've seen over the last four weeks, uh, John wrote his gospel account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that you may believe. And not just like believe generally, like, oh, I believe, sure, that's a good thing. Or even vaguely believe in like a kind of higher power of some sort. But John wrote that you may believe in Jesus, specifically, Jesus of Nazareth. And John says of him in his opening chapter, he says, Jesus is the Word. He's the light. He's the flesh, God himself. He's the Lamb. And this morning, as we'll discover, Jesus is the King. He's the king. But I'm getting just a tad ahead of myself. I want to start back at the beginning of our story this morning. It's John 1. And look with me to your Bibles at verse 35, and I'll read for us here. The next day again, John, this is John the Baptist, he was standing with two of his followers, two of his disciples, 
And John the Baptist looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by, and John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples, John's disciples, they heard him say this, and they began to follow Jesus. Let's stop there for a second. Last Sunday on Christmas Eve, Bill unpacked for us the significance of Jesus as the Lamb. Bill said that seeing Jesus, as we, as we look at Jesus as the Lamb, that ought to remind us of our sin. It ought to remind us of God's love, and it ought to remind us of Jesus' victory. Our sin, God's love, and Jesus' victory. Now, that's a lot packed into the image of a fluffy sheep. But as Bill also unpacked, this theme of lamb, this cuts through the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the very beginning to the very end. This is a central theme of the scriptures. And so when we hear Jesus as lamb, we really ought to think about something much more significant, much more vital, much more full, much more nuanced than the fluffy animated sheep from Chicken Run. (laughs) And so it makes some sense then, since Jesus as lamb is so significant, that these two followers of John the Baptist, they change teams and start following Jesus. But but you know, I actually, I think that that this, the fact that they switch teams and, and switch allegiances, I think that even this gets at part of the answer to our question of why Jesus is worthy. Because you see, John the Baptist was an exceptional person in his own right. I mean, John was a gifted preacher and leader. He had amassed his own following. He had disciples, followers, people that had dedicated themselves to his teaching. And again, this was for good reason. He was bold. He was eccentric. He he spoke the, the truth in a compelling manner. He railed against the power structures of the day. I mean, the man lived in the desert with a diet of locusts and honey. If you were looking for somebody, like, exciting to hitch your wagon to, J.B. was a good option. And and John Brewer would be fine too, right, J.B.? Okay. But that's really, I mean, okay, so John the Baptist is exceptional, but then in the blink of an eye, after hearing just one sliver of this other man, this other person, his two followers, or two of his followers, they immediately switch teams and start following that man. And so you're going, well, who's this guy? (laughs) Who is Jesus? Because again, John the Baptist was no slouch. But in one second, two followers say, all right, we're going after this guy, the lamb of the world, the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. So now Jesus... As we move along in our story, he's got two little shadows (laughs) after him. And Jesus turns to them, to his new followers, and this is significant because this here is the first recorded words of Jesus in John's gospel. Up to this point in the chapter, we've we've had words about Jesus, which are deeply significant, of course. But now we have, for the first time, Jesus speaking, and there is a question on his lips. He turns to the two followers and he says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And I I think this is a fascinating question because I think we have a question that works on multiple levels. This is a natural enough question within the flow of the narrative, isn't it? I mean, if if two people started following me, I think I'd probably turn around and, and ask them something similar. But Jesus is getting at something a little bit deeper. What are you seeking 
I think at a deeper level, what Jesus is asking them is, what do you really want in life? And now, maybe you think I'm reading a little bit too much into it, but if you keep reading the pages of John's gospel, then you'll see this type of question is typical for Jesus. There's a pattern that emerges in Jesus' life and ministry. People are attracted to him. They begin to follow him. And Jesus, he turns and he, he confronts them. He asks them, he says, what do you really want in life? What are you seeking? Why are you following me? And typical of the time, Jesus has asked a question and the two men respond with a question of their own. They say, where are you staying? And I have to say, I really admire the restraint that these two men show. Because don't forget, John the Baptist just moments ago pointed out to them that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I might have been tempted to ask a question about that. <laughs> hey, this sins of the world thing, that seems like a big deal. How does that, when does that happen? But they don't. Instead, they just want to know what bed and breakfast he's checked into. Oh, that's a tough crowd. That joke was funnier than you acted. <laughs> okay, so not really a B&B, &B. fine. Uh, really, actually, again, as we see in this story, again, we've got questions that work on multiple levels. Probably what the disciples are doing are getting at, they're, they're saying, we want to spend more time with you. We want more undivided attention with you, more time, Jesus. Where are you staying? And Jesus, he, he responds to them with a twist on our opening invitation. He says, come and you will see. Where are you staying? Come and you will see. And again, for the third time, a question that works on two levels. Natural enough within the flow of the story. Oh, you want to know where I'm staying? You got to check it out. Killer waffle bar at this bed and breakfast, okay? But at a deeper level, because again, it's not really about where they're staying or the bed and breakfast or the home that he's in. It's not about that. At a deeper level, what Jesus is saying is, come and see me. I'm worthy. Come and see me. And, and maybe you might think that's presumptuous of Jesus or prideful of Jesus. And I think you'd be right if it wasn't Jesus that we were talking about. I mean, consider all that John 1 has revealed about who this man is. He's the Word of God through whom creation was spoken into ex existence. He is the true light of the world who destroys the darkness. He is the flesh, literally God himself with skin on. He's the Lamb the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and then the victorious lamb who takes away our sins and then destroys our sin at the end of all time. And he's the king. This is Jesus. If anyone is allowed to say, come and see me, I'm worthy, it's Jesus. And he does. He does. Jesus says, come and you will see. He extends this beautiful, sweet invitation. And, and that's our first point this morning, folks. Jesus is worthy of seeing because he invites us. Jesus invites us. Stop for a moment with me and consider the magnitude of that. Consider all of who Jesus is. Hold that right here and then spin up this other thought about the fact that that man, that person, invites you, invites me to follow him, to know him, to be with him, to learn from him. 
This is a paradox of the highest proportions because typically the greater a person, the less accessible and the less invitational they are. Now, sometimes it's because they aren't actually great people. They're just famous people who are mean. But other times it just makes sense. We sort of intuitively know that nobody, no matter how great, can extend an invitation to everyone. Except there is one person who can, Jesus, the greatest person of all time. And Jesus, the greatest person of all, he invites you, invites me, and he invites us. He looks at us in love and he says, come, and you will see. Which, isn't that just mind-blowingly wonderful? And I I don't know, I I think this makes him worthy of exploration. I think this makes, here's who Jesus is, here's the fact that he invites you, and I'm going, well, I want to know more. Who is this man? What makes him worthy? Our story continues with Jesus heading into Galilee. In Galilee, Jesus gains another follower, Philip. Philip's immediately, as we've already heard, he's immediately compelled to extend the invitation of come and see to his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel doubts, but he responds to the invitation. He comes and he sees. And as Nathaniel and Philip are walking up to Jesus, Jesus, he says, of Nathanael, he says, Behold, an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. Which I just think must have been such a jarring experience for Nathanael. I think that his response to Jesus' statement, his, his question is really one of bewilderment. How do you know me? How do you know me? Lately, uh, Bevan, who you met earlier, uh, when something surprises him in our house, he's taken uh, to saying the phrase, what the what? (laughs) It's really cute, and I'm just like a 3% biased. (laughs) And it's caught on. We we all are saying now, what the what? And if you you listen closely to John 1, uh, I think you can hear that on Nathaniel's lips, can't you? What the what? Who is this guy? How does he know me? And Jesus' response, it doesn't disappoint. Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now maybe you're thinking, I don't know, that sounds kind of mundane. That's not like, it's not earth shattering. But from Nathaniel's response of just like being totally bowled over, I think we can make a safe guess that the fig tree wasn't just like right over there. This was far away. This was out of eyesight. And Jesus is, he's narrowing down. He's saying, hey, before your buddy went and talked to you, you were underneath a fig tree. And in that space, in that time, out of my eyesight, I saw you. This is a nod to Jesus' divinity. This is a teaser of his supernatural ability. He's God in the flesh. He is not just some old rabbi. And Nathaniel, he didn't take much convincing. Verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He's bowled over. He's convinced Jesus is worthy. And verse 50, I think it's my favorite verse in this passage. It's hilarious, right? Jesus' response to Nathaniel's just overwhelming declaration of who Jesus is. It's basically like, really, Nathaniel? Like, I haven't even warmed up yet. (laughs) Like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait. Just wait. Let's return to 
Nathanael's declaration of Jesus in verse 49. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Let's zero in on on that point, the King of Israel. Because that leads us to our, our second observation this morning about our question here. Jesus is worth seeing because he invites us, but he is also worth seeing because he is king. He is king. And now maybe that doesn't wow you. After all, it's, it's possible that we've grown kind of accustomed or tired or used to this idea of Jesus as king. And so I think it, it might behoove us, it might benefit us this morning to remind ourselves just how groundbreaking, just how earth-shattering this statement would have been in Jesus' day. Because you see, in Jesus' day, there was really only one king, one empire. It was the Roman Empire. And it stretched over much of the known world. And in that empire, it was Caesar. Caesar was king. Caesar was lord. It was printed on all of their coins to say anything else, anyone else as lord, as king. It was blasphemy of the highest order. There was only one king, only one lord. And so, The rumblings of another king, the rumblings of a king being born to the Jewish people, this would have caused quite the ruckus. And we know that it did, right? I mean, there's there's these rumblings of, of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, and there's prophecies about this, and we have magi who are coming to pay tribute and give gifts, and King Herod, who isn't even Caesar, he's not the main king, he's a sub ruler, he loses his mind. He loses his mind and goes on a killing spree because rumblings of another king? I don't think so. Well, fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, right in this gospel in John 18. Jesus has already been arrested. He's been wrongly convicted by the Jewish authorities, but they can't really kill him because, again, Rome. And so they take him to Rome. They take him to a Roman sub-ruler, again, not the main king, they take him to Pilate. And in John 18.33, what is the first question that Pilate asks of Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, are you the king of the... This was the question of the day because nobody came into an encounter of Jesus and walked away thinking, well, that's just kind of nobody. That's just some Joe Schmo, Schmo. They knew, they knew that Jesus was somebody, and so they're all, they're on the edge of their seats. Are you a king? Are you the king? And Jesus' response to Pilate, it's, it's incredibly instructive for us. Because what he does, what Jesus does is he flips it on his head, and he, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. Because that's the twist, isn't it? Folks, Jesus is a king. He is the king. It's just that he's a very different sort of king. He's not king like Caesar. He's not king like really anyone else we've seen to be king at any time, at any point in history. Jesus is king. He's just different. Because Jesus is a king whose glory comes through struggle, not comfort. Jesus is a king whose crown comes through humble service, not prideful domination. Jesus is a king whose throne comes through hardship, pain, and even death. 
And we cannot overstate how groundbreaking that is. I mean, when's the last time that a king that you knew of suffered? When's the last time that a king that you knew of experienced hardship? When's the last time you saw a king willingly die for his subjects? I mean, it's a really good story. I mean, it's been written into stories, right? I mean, this is what Tolkien writes about. I, I just watched Return of the King, the last uh, Lord of the Rings movie, and, and the king that, that is going to ascend to the throne in that movie, Aragon, he does go fight with his subjects, right? But who was Tolkien really writing about? It's, he's just a copy. It's a really good copy. Lord of the Rings is incredible, but Aragon is not the real king. Jesus is. Jesus is the only real king who willingly got off of his throne, took off of his crown, and picked up his cross to die for his subjects. I mean, that's a king worth seeing, isn't it? Last Sunday on Christmas Eve, as a fun treat for all of us, we watched a children's book together called The Christmas Promise. It's really, really good. It's beautiful artwork, and we put it to some music and had a good reading of it. And the book is about God's promise, you know, in fact, to send a very different king than the kings that we're used to. And the introduction of the book, it it goes this way, and just one night, God kept that promise. God kept that promise by sending Jesus, who is, the book says, a new king, a rescuing king, and a forever king. A new king, a rescuing king, and a forever king. I mean, isn't that just it? And I don't know about you, but I think that's somebody worth seeing. The king who invites you. Well, where does that leave us this morning? Here in Brookside in the last day of 2017. Well, two questions for us this morning as we close. First, I wonder... Have you come and seen Jesus yourself? Have you come and seen Jesus yourself? Because that's where all of this is driving, isn't it? Because Jesus can't be left off to the side. Pilate tried to wash his hands, literally wash his hands of Jesus and leave him to the side, but Jesus doesn't work that way. Jesus demands a response. And so what have you done with Jesus? Who is he to you? Well, maybe you you treat Jesus as your savior only. Jesus is your get-out-of-hell-free card. But Jesus doesn't really work that way. We can't divorce Jesus as savior from Jesus as king. They are two sides of the same magnificent coin. Ignoring Jesus as your savior means that you also do ignore him as your king. Or maybe you disagree with me that Jesus demands a response. Maybe you're thinking, no, actually, Paul, I I have basically left Jesus to the side. But with Jesus, as with so many things in life, and we know this to be true, a non-response is a response. I mean, think about the, the marriage proposal. The expectant boyfriend, he gets down on one knee, he looks up at his beloved, and he says the magic words, will you marry me? Now, how would we interpret the situation if the fiancé-to-be or girlfriend just kind of doesn't answer, looks down at her boyfriend, and then after a few seconds awkwardly walks away? 
I mean, technically it's a non-response, but come on. That's the response of the loudest possible noise, isn't it? It's the same with Jesus. A non-response is a response. So again, I submit, have you come and seen Jesus? And if you have, what happened? Did you accept his invitation? Are you following him, obeying him, learning from him, submitting to him? And I think I would add to this question for those of us who do consider ourselves to be Christ followers, I think I would add, have you come and seen Jesus lately? Have you come and seen Jesus lately? Because this isn't just a one-time experience, is it? Following Jesus as our king means that we seek to see him each and every day. But I know, I know in my own life, I'm all too often to simply just leave Jesus off to the side. Oh, Jesus, I say, I, you know, been there, done that. Kind of a little bit, just a little bit tired if you ask me. But may it never be. Friends, what, what a sad and sorrowful posture that is towards Jesus to be tired with him, the king of everything. May it never be. When I do regrettably find myself in, in that place, I turn quickly to a prayer that I discovered in the Valley of the Vision. Valley of the Vision is a collection of Puritan prayers, and this is one of my favorites that I've come across. I pray this, strengthen me to give you, God, no rest until Christ, until Jesus reigns supreme within me in every thought, word, and deed, in a faith that purifies the heart, overcomes the world, works by love, fastens me to you, and ever clings to the cross. I mean, what would the world look like if each and every Christian committed to give God no rest until Christ reigned supreme within them? I mean, that's a 2018 that I want to see, isn't it? Have you come and seen Jesus? Well, our second question for us this morning is, are you inviting others to come and see Jesus? Are you inviting others to come and see Jesus? As we walked along in our story this morning, we, we passed over a few verses because I wanted to come back to them at this point because what was happening in virtually every verse that we passed over was an invitation, come and see. In verse 41, we discover that Andrew, he was one of the two original John disciples who decided to follow Jesus. He tracked down his brother, Simon Peter, and invited him to come and see Jesus. Most of us might know Simon Peter. He was probably the most well-known disciple. He got to Jesus because someone else was convinced of his worthiness and said to him, come and see. Verse 43 in our passage, the ESV says that Jesus was the one who decided to go to Galilee, but it actually might make more sense of the original language to read that verse with Andrew, again Andrew, being the one who decided to go to Galilee. Why? Why would Andrew go to Galilee? Well, it was so that he could find Philip 
and say to Philip, follow me because I have to take you to this guy named Jesus. Come and see Jesus. And then, as we've already seen this morning, Philip says to Nathaniel, come and see. So you've got Andrew going to Simon Peter. You've got Andrew probably, possibly going to Philip. You've got Philip going to Nathaniel. And what we see over and over and over again is people are just convinced of Jesus' worthiness and they go to people that they know, friends, family, co-workers, and they say, I found a man who is unlike any man I've ever met before. Come with me and see him. In in John 4, uh, Jesus with the woman at the well, after her encounter, she goes back and it says that she told the entire town, come with me and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Come with me. Come and see. Summing up this point, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this, As Andrew, I have the quote here, we can just jump, yep, as Andrew brought Simon Peter and perhaps Philip to Jesus, so Philip found Nathanael and witnessed to him. And that, that has been the foundational principle of truly Christian expression ever since. New followers of Jesus, next slide, yep, new followers of Jesus bear witness of him to others who in turn become disciples and repeat the process. And this brings us back to our final question for this morning. Are you inviting others to come and see Jesus? If not, why not? And yes, I, to- I totally and completely understand the challenges. This is something I struggle with in my own life. I get it. I really do. And I'm not saying this is easy. I'm just saying that it's expected, <laughs> required. It's necessary. This is how the gospel moves forth. And maybe one reason why you're struggling, I know this is true in my own life, Sometimes I'm not convinced of the worthiness of Jesus. Not enough anyway. But if that burrows down deep into your heart, deep enough that you can't shake it, then you cannot help but say to others that you know and love, come and see this man who changed everything about me. Come and see. You know, I mentioned uh, earlier, a couple weeks ago, we're going to spend most of 2018 in the book of Acts. And this theme of public faith is going to come back over and over and over again. This is, this is just a teaser. So a simple next step this morning, don't, you know, don't worry about trying to just go crazy on this. Just take a simple next step of committing to pray for just one person. Who's not, not two, not three, not five, just, just one person that God is, is placing on your heart, he's impressing upon you right now, who could you begin praying for that you might have an opportunity to say to them, come and see, come and see. Well, I'd like to draw our attention back to our passage one more time, one more time this morning, to a phrase that Jesus uses in his response to Nathaniel. It's, it's back in my favorite verse, verse 50. It's where Jesus says, hey, I, I, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm not even warmed up. And, he, and, and Jesus says to Nathaniel, he says, you will see greater things than these. Greater things than these. Boy, how true was that? Jesus is likely referring to the signs and miracles that are dripped throughout the book of John. Jesus turns water into wine. He heals multiple people. He feeds the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fishes. He walks on water. And then as his grand manifesto, he shows his power over death by raising his friend Lazarus from the grave. Which, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples for a second. 
Because the raising of Lazarus, it happens near the end of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 11. And so as a disciple, you've been with Jesus for a while. You've walked with him. You know what he can do. But here you are outside of a grave of a man that you loved as well. Lazarus was like friends with all of these guys. And he's in the grave. He's been there for days. And maybe as a disciple, you think to yourself, if only we had gotten here earlier because I've seen Jesus heal with my own two eyes but raise a man from the dead? Nobody can do that. And then, as soon as you think that, John records for us in John chapter 11. Let me read for us, starting in verse 41. They took away the stone, the stone of the grave of Lazarus, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this out loud on account of the people standing around. Why? That they may believe. That they may believe that you sent me, Father. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the man who had died. You see, John doesn't leave. It's not like Monty Python, like I'm mostly dead, (laughs) right? He doesn't want to leave it. Lazarus had been in there for days. He was dead. But the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I mean, spellbinding, isn't it? I mean, what could possibly, what could possibly be better than Lazarus coming back to life? What could be a greater thing, as Jesus promised Nathaniel, what could be a greater thing than that? Well, well, as it turned out, (laughs) there was one thing. Because you see, friends, Lazarus' resurrection was only a foretaste. It was only a teaser of the greatest thing of all time, full stop. That thing, that thing, that what the what, quote to quote Bevan, that what the what thing started when, as we've already talked about, the real and true king took off his crown so that he could pick up his cross and walk to his death, the death that you and I deserved. And he did that for you. And he did that for me. But church, it gets even better than that because you see, Three days later, three days after the king, the real king, walked to his death for you and for me. The greatest thing of all time, full stop, had its impossible conclusion, the empty grave. Because church, our king is not dead, he's alive. He is alive and he reigns. He has been exalted, he has been raised up, he has come back to life, he has conquered over death. And even from that exalted place, can I tell you something, church? He sees you. He desires you. Jesus, where are you staying? Come and you will see. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what can we say but thank you for Jesus? Thank you for Jesus, our King. May we never, ever, ever grow tired of him. Thank you that he defeated death, that he reigns again, and thank you that he invites us and sees us. Father, I want to close by praying this prayer for all of us from the Valley of the Vision. Strengthen us to give you, God, no rest 
until Jesus shall reign supreme within us in every thought, word, and deed, in a faith that purifies the heart, overcomes the world, works by love, fastens us to you, and ever clings to Jesus, our King's cross. Amen.